This episode of What in the World was produced in collaboration with the Diversity and National Security Network. The Diversity and National Security Network is a coalition of national security and foreign policy practitioners working to diversify the sector. Check them out at diversitynationalsecuritynetwork.com. Hello and welcome to What in the World, the podcast that makes global politics understandable and relevant to your everyday life. I, of course, am your host, Bumi Ekinisoto. It's been a long time. It really hasn't, but... I'm still Boomy. We're continuing this special series of the podcast called Is America Dead? Is it relevant? Is it necessary? Does it really actually matter anymore in the world? And I've been gathering some really smart folks and some good people who know their stuff to address this question, particularly in the context of COVID-19, the global pandemic that has just brought our lives to a screeching halt. So since the start of the pandemic, the 72-year-old organization known as the World Health Organization has, of course, been at the center of this peculiar dilemma we're faced with. And so now, unless you're in the medical field or you've worked alongside health professionals from around the world, or maybe you've lived abroad in conflict areas, you probably have never heard about the World Health Organization. Or if you did, it was probably a part of some conspiracy theory about the UN and how it plans to become, you know, the world government. That is not what we're talking about on this episode of What in the World. We're actually going to break apart the genesis of the international organization world or the multilateral institutions as we use in the foreign policy space, how the World Health Organization works, and of course, America's role in these spaces and what it means for you. So joining me is an old friend of mine from my Columbia days, (laughs) Mr. Pushkar Sharma. Welcome to the show, Pushkar. Thank you so much for having me, Mubi. I'm so excited you're here with us. So Pushkar is an independent policy strategist, and he has had extensive experience on human rights issues while working for the United Nations. So we actually have somebody who knows this space from the inside and isn't a conspiracy theorist and can speak to the heart of the matter from his own perspective. He spent three and a half years on peacekeeping missions in Kosovo. He's led the UN Access Coordinating Office in the Gaza, which I still think is like the coolest thing. I don't know that I know anybody who's ever worked in the Gaza, but Pushkar. So I'm excited to talk about the work that he did there. He's overall our human rights expert, and he's done analyses on Colombia, Myanmar, Iraq, you know, the hard places that are located all around the world and some of the very complex human rights issues of our time. So, Pushkar, thank you for agreeing to talk to us about international organizations and multilateral institutions. Thank you so much. (laughs) Really make it sound so exciting. Michael Bay presents international (laughs) organizations. It is. Bad boys. Yes. Yes, yes. It's so dope. To me, I think it's dope. And I think our listeners think it's dope. So, Pushkar, you're from Illinois. Yes. Right? Yes, you're from the great state of Illinois. How in the world did you go from Skokie? Shout out to Skokie. Shout out uh, to Skokie. (laughs) Skokie, Illinois, to this world of human rights and foreign policy peacekeeping issues. Thanks again for inviting me on here. It's so great to reconnect. You started at the top saying this is a set of episodes with smart people and good people. (laughs) Yeah. I'm curious to know which one I fall into. You're both. You're both. (laughs) No, but um, you're asking a good question of 
how did I come to this work? And all of us have our different stories. You yourself have very interesting stories as well. I'm starting with some smiles and some jokes over here because we've got a serious topic at our hands. It's going to get serious. So trying to start fun and I'll just plunge into it. Our family history is interesting. Both sets of my grandparents are from Lahore, which is now in Pakistan. In 1947, the British partitioned India in two countries, India and Pakistan, which resulted in roughly 10 to 12 million people becoming refugees displaced and 1 to 2 million people dying. Many of those people fled religious persecution. This is something known in South Asia as the partition, era of partition. So my father's side of the family ended in Amritsar, India, my mother in Delhi, and it sort of started the chain of movement and migration for our family. My parents would later seek a better life and opportunity, came to Chicago. Hey, uh, Chicago. Yes, Chicago, there you go. <laughs> and I was born in Chicago and uh, grew up in Skokie, Illinois, on the north side. Skokie is a very interesting and wonderful place that has a deep culture of welcoming immigrants and refugees. That's primarily defined because Skokie was inhabited by so many survivors of the Holocaust. I think there's estimates of up to 7,000 plus Holocaust survivors in Skokie, and I think that the mayor of Skokie has said that the largest group of Holocaust survivors anywhere outside of Israel in wow. Skokie. I did not know that. The more you know. And so I think that really created a culture in Skokie of welcoming people who have been through some very difficult times, who have survived. So growing up there, actually, the community continued to welcome different communities from different parts of the world who had seen difficult times and fled difficulties overseas. Uh, so I, in fact, I went to high school. They used to joke that our high school was the, quote, mini United Nations. There were <laughs> something like 90 different languages spoken. We had people who had left Iraq, Lebanon, Colombia, Nigeria, shout out, Yugoslavia, Pakistan, Philippines. I mean, I could just sit here and name countries, you know, where my friends are from. And it was wonderful because what we saw is how so many different communities could come together to build a thriving, vibrant, and peaceful community. The town motto these days, they say, Skokie welcomes everyone. So that was really the bright side of it. But the flip side of the coin, of course, is that people came to Skokie because they had endured so much. And we heard so many stories from, I don't want to go into too many things, but people leaving places at gunpoint, bombs falling down over Baghdad during the first Iraq war, people fleeing there. And so all of these individual painful stories really taught us a lot, you know, when we came of age in high school. Our own family history, Skokie's own experience with the Holocaust, and then these individual stories kind of encouraged me or inspired me, opened my eyes to want to do something to ensure that no other child or no other generation was put through these types of painful stories, this kind of calamity. Yeah. What I love about the Skokie experience in high school is kind of like a foreshadowing, in a way, of your work at the UN. You've worked for the UN and you went to a school that you said was called the Little UN. So I think that's pretty awesome. Not a lot of people get that experience. Yeah. And in a way, we didn't realize how special it was until later on in life. Mm -hmm. And so myself and a number of our friends, we really cherished that experience and all that it gave us and all that it taught us. Yeah. And you mentioned having the chance to do some work abroad. You've gone to some places that are pretty 
pretty tough, right? You've gone to some places that have issues with war, certainly in violence. What's a major lesson? Because I was so, like, I've always been impressed by the fact that you were in the Gaza. And my image of the Gaza is it's very, like, war-torn, is violence, is death, and all of these things. And and that you were there, one, I was worried about you. But two, I was also curious, like, what is he doing? And what is, what is his day-to-day like in this place? What was a major lesson you took from the experience either in Gaza or Kosovo and, or sort of the work that you've been doing in places that are struck by conflict, unfortunately? One of my uncles at one point made a joke that it seemed that my career was guided by looking at the map and the dashed lines on the map. You know, following places where disputed territories where there weren't the full <laughs> lines. That's hilarious. But um, no, that's not the case. You just kind of try to contribute and certain people offer you jobs. So you say yes. Yeah. <laughs> that's yeah. how it works. Um, but um, I guess one major lesson that I've learned, um, having seen a variety of different places. So when you're sitting down with different people or different community representatives, no community can be summed up by one person communities are very diverse and they're different perspectives. But oftentimes, the history of conflict or political leaders often stoke these kind of nationalist elements that all of us believe this and we all hate those people, right? And it's unfortunate that you start to see and hear some of these stereotypes or biases of one group describing the other group. But because our work requires us to be on both sides of in all the communities, talking to all the communities, you have the special opportunity to really engage and start to see the similarities. Because you're an outsider or a third party coming in, you can really start to see the similarities between those groups, see the similarities of individuals and communities within our, you know, my own experience, my own friends, my own family, and really start to see that everyone at their very core has hopes and fears, humor, delicious food. And <laughs> you start to <laughs> start to look beyond those biases that have been forced into the heads and to see at the core that everyone's a human and look beyond the fear that has been stoked oftentimes in these situations. And everyone is really just trying to find a way to better their own lives and the lives of future generations in their community. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, let's jump into just a quick breakdown of these international organizations now. I find it interesting you opened with your story about the partition, the dividing of India and Pakistan in 1947, which also happened to be the year that the UN was founded. And so 1947 was a popular year. The United Nations, the World Health Organization, it was an era of world history where countries just didn't want to fight anymore. They wanted to figure out a place where everybody could come together and, as you so neatly put it, find common ground or find the humanity in each other, find ways to bring the similarities of their situations or their histories or their food or their story or whatever it is together. And so we have the international organization such as the UN that was created, but having come from the inside, having done the work on the ground, Pushkar, just tell me what your perspective is in terms of why these international organizations were set up. Sure. The reason the UN was founded, the system was created, was really in the aftermath of the horrors of World War II and the Holocaust. The idea was post-World War II to create a system that would ensure such tragedies would never happen again. One thing that I think often gets underplayed here in, in the US, which is always strange to me, is how deeply involved the US was in creating this system. Franklin Delano Roosevelt 
coined the term United Nations. It was his his name? <laughs> like he, he named it. <laughs> Eleanor Roosevelt is enormous leader, leading or contributing to the drafting of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which is one of the main guiding documents of the UN. The UN Charter was actually signed in San Francisco. Yes. I remember seeing pictures of that on the History Channel's website. Yes. Oh, yeah. Pretty cool pictures. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and you can still visit the hotel where they signed it, where they hosted the convention there. The Charter of the UN begins actually, we the peoples, with an S there at the end. But again, that's just parallel with the U.S. Constitution there, we the people. So some of these very symbolic but very clear connections between the United Nations and the United States. Obviously, the headquarters of the UN being in New York is also an obvious deep connection to the institution in this country. So I think it's oftentimes somehow strangely overlooked the influences of the U.S. into the UN. Yeah. Not until you just said it did I realize the sort of undertone, the we the peoples, the United Nations. And of course, it being in New York, I kind of just assumed New York, because it's, it's such an international city, was convenient. But I guess it does make sense, particularly given its deep immigrant history, <laughs> that the headquarters would be there. But I hadn't actually put all those pieces together until you said it, Pushkar. So thanks for teaching us that. That's pretty awesome. The World Health Organization, WHO has roughly 150 offices around the world. The purpose of the organization is to ensure that all people enjoy the highest standard of health. They have a variety of different programs, simple things that could often go overlooked, like collecting data from all countries around the world to monitor yeah. diseases and outbreaks and developments. Because if you didn't have one agreed upon international organization, there could be lots of holes. Many countries don't yeah. coordinate with each other they may be too small to talk to, you know, a country in South America likely doesn't have an embassy in, somewhere in East Asia or something like that. So perhaps those bilateral relationships don't exist. So having one agreed upon organization to help collect that data really helps to centralize it and ensure that every member state of the WHO can access the information. One interesting point that I came across in my research for our conversation here is the fact that there is actually an international classification of diseases that the WHO houses, which is in short compilation of all diseases translated into something like 40 plus languages. So everyone knows what every disease is, can understand it in their own language, access the information, and even report on the disease in a standard way. Because if you just think about, for example, an outbreak of COVID-19, for example, again, not to pick on South America, but a smaller country in South America may not have the, the Mandarin language skills if we didn't have WHO there to translate it and explain it and pass it along. Mm -hmm. Perhaps they wouldn't have the information right away and wouldn't be able to yeah. react. Makes sense. Just wanted to give some of those thoughts about some things the World Health Organization does. And those are very practical examples that I think we all take for granted, particularly since everything's in the standard language is English yeah. <laughs> in most places. So we don't realize in America how, you know, for other countries and say South America or Asia or anywhere where English isn't the predominant language that access is important because they have every right to take care of their people in the same way that we do. I think this is a good time to switch and talk about funding. We did an episode, actually a couple of episodes about the United Nations. And it was very helpful just to get a broad level understanding of the various issues and agendas and initiatives that the UN 
works on. And we talked a lot about Kofi Annan and his leadership at the UN, but we didn't talk too deeply about just like in terms of funding. And this is, I think, where we see a lot of news flurry about funding and mismanagement of funds and all of this. But can you just talk about or explain to us how the United Nations and the World Health Organization, how are they funded and staffed and what influence does the United States have given the amount that we contribute to these entities? Sure. The funding, I'll start there. We can talk about broadly. There are two types of funding that goes to what we'll call the UN and its various agencies, being like UNICEF, the Office of High Commissioner for Refugees, a variety of different agencies that are organizations within the broader UN system. So the way that countries would pay, would fund these institutions are one through assessed contributions. Assessed contributions is essentially every country pays a different amount based on their capacity to pay. There's a special formula that, for example, takes into account if you are Uganda versus if you are Italy versus France. Basically, it looks at kind of your economic situation and calculates how much you need to pay every year in quote-unquote assessed contributions. In addition to that, there are what's called voluntary contributions. Voluntary contributions are exactly what it sounds like. This means if you are a country that is prioritizing a certain issue, in this case, let's talk about health. Maybe you're really enthusiastic about ensuring that health is funded well and WHO can do its job. You can identify as much money that you'd like to give as a government and contribute it to the work of the World Health Organization. So that's the assessed contributions versus the voluntary contributions. And so in practice, what ends up happening is, if I understand correctly, the greater the economic capacity of a country, say the United States or Canada, UK, wherever, the more money you give, correct? It's a very complex formula. We can give you guys a link put up on your website. People can take a look at it. For people who might not necessarily believe in the UN or the World Health Organization or really any of these international organizations, this argument that these international laws and all of these elements that come out of this space impede on national sovereignty. (laughs) And that one day there's just going to be this world government controlling everything that happens in the United States. So how do countries protect their sovereignty but participate in these international organizations, particularly when people don't agree? Thanks for that question. I think what's interesting is when you discuss national sovereignty as the center of the question there, because it's very interesting to me and almost ironic, the UN Charter is literally the piece of international law that establishes state sovereignty. The UN Charter gives equality for every state and establishes the law that no state's sovereignty can be violated. So, for example... It is the framework of this international system that means, for example, it would be against the law for Canada to invade the U.S., right? Because the U.S.'s sovereignty is defended by the international law of the U.N. Charter. The U.N. Charter also provides very specific instances when one state can, quote, impede on another state's sovereignty. The example I'll use here is in response to September 11th attacks, the UN Security Council passed a resolution which set up a peacekeeping mission, International Security Force in Afghanistan, post 9-11, because the situation was deemed to be, quote, 
threat to international peace and security. Mm -hmm. I think one of the things we'll make sure we do is to share the UN Charter. We should definitely check out the UN Charter that talks about sovereignty. I, I think that it's just been a little too easy for some people to point to the fact that the UN is a place where your sovereignty is basically useless, but it's actually in the charter, which I myself am going to go back and make sure I reread to catch up. But we should say that also individual and community rights are supported by international law through the UN Declaration of Human Rights and other Mm -hmm. national human treaties that defend the rights of children, women, refugees, rights, asylum seekers, and others. Um, So as part of the UN system, there are international laws established to ensure to protect people's rights Um, rather than, as some speculate, infringe on those rights. Yeah. And I do recall from history books that actually there was a time in our history, in American history, where certain populations petitioned to the UN, particularly during the civil rights era, that America was in violation of the International Human Rights Declaration and all of that for all of this sort of- 100%. Yeah. All of the sort of unfortunate circumstances that African-Americans found themselves here in the United States. Totally. Well, let's talk about COVID. Let's transition to COVID and apply what you've talked about to this interesting situation that we've uh, found ourselves with. Starting with recently, the president announced that the White House was going to pause America's funding to the World Health Organization, which just sort of seemed outlandish to me, like of all the time, at any point this could have happened. But here we are in the middle of a global pandemic. The president has decided to pause funding. And I went to the White House website and I was drawn to this sort of section that talks about some of the structural issues. It says that the WHO has longstanding structural issues that must be addressed before the organization can be trusted again. It was not prepared to prevent, detect, and respond to a severe infectious disease. It lacks the structure to ensure accurate information and transparent data sharing from members, which you talked about, Pushkar. And then it says the United States seeks to refocus the WHO on fulfilling its core mission of preparedness, response, and stakeholder coordination. When I read this, I thought this is interesting because a lot of people, frankly, have a a hard time coordinating things that are happening in their household. (laughs) So never mind trying to coordinate 100 plus countries around a global pandemic. But but Pushkar, how is the case of COVID being coordinated by the WHO at this point? And is there some validity or reason to be concerned about their structural issues or capacity to coordinate all that's going on. Thank you for that question. I'd like to start by talking about the big picture. The big picture here is if we don't beat coronavirus in every corner of the world, it's going to resurge again, threaten more people's lives, and shut the economy down again. I should say that if the U.S. failed to stop it within our own country, and it's tragic that we've lost the most lives of any country so far, If that's the case, we can't expect our own government to stop it globally, everywhere. The UN and the WHO provide a system of experts that's already coordinating a world response to defeat the virus everywhere. I'll give three examples of how the WHO has actually acted faster than most countries on the planet, and unfortunately, faster than our own country here. 
The first one is on early warning. Since January 22nd, the World Health Organization has been holding daily briefings calling for action by all governments to stop the spread of coronavirus. That was a period, actually, January 22nd, when there were only a handful of infections and no deaths outside of China. During that same period, there was no action from Washington, despite multiple internal discussions. Investigations have revealed that different members of the president's cabinet, including the Health and Human Services Secretary, his own economic advisor, Peter Navarro, had questions, raised concerns about the need for action to address COVID-19 within the U.S. Furthermore, there was even discussions of at the National Security Council of the possibility of shutting down cities like our beautiful Chicago here to stop the spread of COVID-19. On this topic, unfortunately, the U.S. didn't adopt the WHO-endorsed policies such as stay-at-home and social distancing until mid-March, despite those warnings being raised at the 22nd of January. There was no response until mid-March. The second example focuses on testing, which was key to beating Ebola in 2014. If we remember, we had Ebola landing on the shores in the U.S., but it was addressed and did not spread and did not take the lives of tens of thousands within our own country. But the testing, at the end of February, the WHO had produced 1.4 million tests that had been manufactured. A portion of those were offered to the U.S., like they were offered to many countries around the world, in an effort to stem the tide of the growth of the virus. Unfortunately, it's still unclear to me the reasoning, but the U.S. declined accepting those tests from the WHO. As something I've tried to research, there's no clear answer. The U.S. then chose to produce tests locally, but had serious problems with that, multiple weeks of delay, and by the end of February, the same amount of time that the WHO had produced 1.4 million tests, the U.S. had only implemented 4,000 working tests. When you look at Germany's response, which people are talking is one of the best responses globally, Germany actually used those WHO tests, which were produced in Germany, and people say that the German response was successful due to early rigorous testing. Even South Korea, when you look at which is another example of a, a great success in managing COVID-19, experts will say that it's due to this early testing and often. Let's talk then about this third example of the World Health Organization and its coordinating efforts. The third example that I think is worth talking about here is the vaccine, because that's what is going to help us turn the corner and get back to some semblance of a normal life again. We all know the vaccine is going to take some time. But actually, on the 24th of April, the WHO announced coordinating a group of world leaders and scientists, that includes 100 plus countries, 130 scientists, that is working to speed up the creation of a vaccine. They're raising billions of dollars to coordinate efforts to create a vaccine and related drugs. As part of this, all participating countries have pledged that if they discover the vaccine in their own country, they will share it with the rest of the world, not keep it for themselves. The obvious logic here is a coronavirus that is anywhere can come and strike any country in the world. WHO is leading this, and there are thousands of volunteers that have already offered their themselves for trials of the vaccine. So they're really moving on this. Unfortunately, thus far, the U.S. has not agreed to work in this coordination with the rest of the world to find a vaccine, which is strange and frustrating given 
absolute recognition of everyone that the vaccine is the holy grail. And the WHO has been faster at warning countries, been fast at developing a test than the US. And now it seems to be leading a very strong, coordinated, concerted effort to search for a vaccine. Yeah, this point you're making strikes at the purpose of this series, America's relevancy and America's leadership. When I hear you say that America has not signed on to this agreement or signed on to this initiative, the pragmatic person in me is like, well, maybe there's something in there that they don't like. And so if there is, let's talk about what might be some things that may cause the United States to sort of pause. So in one sense, I'm understanding of the fact that you want to be careful of what you enter into. But then on the other hand, a part of me is like uh, just about the entire world, or at least those people who we call our friends, our allies, the UK, right? Germany. If our allies and our friends, our friends, if they're on board with this and willing to put some skin in the game, why can't we? And so this goes back again to my question of whether or not America is actually relevant. To your point, also, other people have stepped up to the plate. And this theme has come up in various conversations we've had on this show that if America isn't present, somebody else will be. And whether or not we like that person or group or country or whoever becomes pointless because if we're not present, we're not present. Uh, (laughs) And so we leave a a void. And I, I guess... From your perspective, Pushkar, is there a reason to be concerned that other countries might, I hate to say it, replace the United States when it comes to its global leadership in these international organizations? I think my my initial thought in response to your question there is that to talk about how the United Nations is really a democratic forum. You have 193 member states who all compete for attention, try to push their own priorities. But it is a democratic forum in that every voice can speak and every voice can be heard. The U.S. historically has had a very loud voice, as we talked a little bit about this, in determining the vision of the United Nations broadly, individual agencies like the WHO. And you could even say no country in the history of the U.N. in the world has had more influence than the U.S., and that the U.S. has used it to push democratic values, human rights, values that have been central to kind of the American foreign policy outlook over the last 70 plus years of the United Nations. So the U.S. has had a very loud voice historically. I can speak for myself having worked at the U.N., and I can tell you that being on the ground in a peacekeeping mission in Kosovo or humanitarian affairs work in the Gaza Strip, nations regularly advocate for their own priorities. They have an idea of a way something should be done, and they will lobby you at the UN. You can describe the UN as sort of like a sports league, building off a quote of a former US ambassador to the UN here. I would like to give the analogy that if the UN is the sports league, every team is participating and jockeying for position, right? So if your team is losing, you don't just blame the league, the NFL or the NBA you don't just blame the league for your team losing, right? You have to acknowledge your loss. And if you want to win and getting your priorities through, you have to step up and play harder, push harder, right? So in that sort of analogy there, the US, as we're talking about here, seems to be stepping away from the game, leaning back from the game. And to your point there, yes, other teams in the league are still going to continue competing 
and win in getting their own priorities or their own issues addressed because one team has dropped out. At the same time, we should talk about China is the question here. People are always talking about China. But the U.S. contributes roughly 15% of the WHO's budget. China is less than 1%. So in fact, it's very strange to me that a president here would complain about other countries getting undue influence at the WHO, because if the U.S. believes that its priorities aren't being addressed, it needs to be more vocal in advocating for those priorities. Maybe it's a result of the State Department being deeply understaffed, and as a result, there are fewer U.S. representatives at the WHO pushing and advocating for the U.S. perspective. So if we're talking just financially, the U.S. contribution is the largest contributor, and like I said, roughly 15% of the budget. Pushkar, you've talked about two global powerhouses, the United States and China. They're always the top of discussion in these environments. But, you know, I'm quite curious about how other smaller countries that are fragile, that don't have the same military, maybe the political structure in those countries aren't as stable. Uh, Certainly they're dealing with war. And we've heard about some of these countries such as Iraq and Congo and places like Kosovo. How does the World Health Organization support these places? Because the United States is not going to be there to help all of these countries. So what's the role of the World Health Organization in making sure that COVID doesn't spread there? Yeah, great question. And I think you're underscoring the point that we need to beat the virus in every corner of the world to be able to turn a corner and get past this. Because if we only beat it in certain countries, larger countries or better resourced countries, the virus can resurge and come back to even well-resourced countries. The UN Secretary General has called for a global ceasefire, which has impacted at least 12 conflicts last I checked, with the logic of we need to stop the war and address COVID-19, otherwise the catastrophe of war is going to be doubled by this health catastrophe as well. (laughs) The Secretary General Guterres has also launched a $2 billion global plan and fund that would help support the world's least well-resourced, some might describe as materially poor countries, to fight COVID-19. So centralizing a fund to support vulnerable countries. There are a number of, as you described, places in the world like Congo or Afghanistan, Kosovo, where there are peacekeeping missions or relief operations like Yemen ongoing. I was on the line with a friend in Somalia today at the peacekeeping mission there and in touch with colleagues in Gaza and Kosovo is where I had worked. And they talked about a variety of things being done to support governments, preparedness, containment mitigation measures, communications and community engagement, a variety of these things that are underway in these hard hit places. Yeah, that's good to know. Particularly the ceasefire component is really Interesting, because I feel like that could possibly have some long-term effect. Of course, COVID is something I think we'll be, I think we'll be dealing with the disease for a while. But the ceasefire component, the violence, the war, the silver lining is that perhaps for a moment, some of these places could have relief and maybe use it as an opportunity to rebuild or include other groups that maybe have been left out, et cetera, et cetera. So I really find that part interesting about the ceasefire. Yeah, totally. And kind of a related point here about how the UN can help in such a situation, we should recall the Ebola example from 2014 and 15. During that period, the US led the UN Security Council to create a UN peacekeeping mission, which actually was on the ground stopping the outbreak 
working with the World Health Organization, mm-hmm. stopping the Ebola outbreak. And actually, some estimates say that initiative helped to save 100,000 plus lives. So the importance of a central approach, coordinated approach through the Security Council and U.S. leadership has historically been there and would be so helpful here. You know, I had a sports analogy earlier there about a sports league and competition. I'd like to build off that and just say that this is honestly the middle of the Super Bowl, right? <laughs> it's, it's actually bigger than the Super Bowl. And if one player thinks that there's a missed call, that there's a penalty – During the Super Bowl, a player doesn't just quit and walk off the field, right? Like, I'm done, coach. (laughs) No, no, you have to play to win or else you know that you're going to feel the pain of losing the Super Bowl for the rest of your life. And so the WHO is committed to conducting a post-pandemic evaluation. Every organization, every country, every city, every school district, every business is going to be looking at their contingency plans and post-pandemic evaluating what they did, what they did wrong, what they did right. But having said that, we can't just walk off the field in the middle of the Super Bowl and still expect to win to the win. game. Yeah. It doesn't make sense. Yeah. If you walk off, you lose. And when we talk about losing here, we're talking about a devastating toll of tens of thousands, and that's lucky scenario. Yeah. What potentially might be hundreds of thousands of lives. Yeah, that's a great analogy. Yeah, I would be so pissed off if the Patriots walked off the football field. I would be so, so pissed off during the Super Bowl. And I'm so sorry to hear that you're a Patriots fan. <laughs> this conversation was going <laughs> so well. Oh my goodness. Take a different turn. Again. I'm just going to walk I away. I mean, the Burrs, I mean, what are they doing these days? But, anyways. <laughs> really, they're, they're not, but. Um, I'm surprised that you haven't left DC and going to Tampa Bay. Oh, I thought you wow. might just step up and go down. I'm not going anywhere near Florida, Florida. considering what their governor is doing. So they can, <laughs> uh, he can he can stay down true. there in Florida. I'll stay up here. Now. I'll stay with my mayor here in DC. She's great. <laughs> well, Pushkar, this has been a great conversation. We've covered a lot. We've covered some ground in terms of why international organizations like the World Health Organization exist. And you made the valid point, which is they're there as peace brokers. They're there to find common ground and to help groups that are in disagreement find a way forward. You talked about the contributions and the different ways that countries like the United States can support the World Health Organization. Having walked away from the World Health Organization, is it relevant? Is it going to be influential? Is it influential when it comes to international organizations? I have to say that, yes, the U.S. is still absolutely relevant. Like we talked a little bit earlier about the history here of the U.S.'s deep involvement shaping the United Nations and the international systems of the world, how it's really helped to provide the vision of the UN and WHO and other agencies over generations, you know, 75 years coming on the the anniversary of it. So that historic connection, that deep connection, the contributions financially and leadership as well remain cannot walk away from that overnight. In fact, I would say that what we're looking at right here is a a world that's increasingly connected. When we look at COVID-19, I think it's so obvious to every person from an expert professor to your neighbor next door that if a disease, a virus starting so far away in the world can come and lead to a lockdown here in my city, Chicago, your city there in Washington, it shows how necessary international coordination is needed. The issues that we're facing, COVID-19, climate change, the global economy, refugees, migrants facing war and poverty, cybersecurity, 
All of these things need to be addressed together. None of these issues are individual issues that one country can try to dodge and avoid. They're across nations. They know no boundaries. I mean, no wall can stop COVID-19. No drone strike can kill COVID-19. It got Prince Charles. It got Tom Hanks. So no matter how well protected your life is, how well off you are, this disease can get you. If I could drop another analogy here, another metaphor, I'll describe it like this. The town fire station is the analogy I'd like to use. If lightning strikes and causes a fire that burns down a lot of the town, what the town needs is a fire station that's better equipped to respond more quickly. You don't just shut down the fire station and pray that there won't be more lightning strikes or more fires, right? Mm -hmm. And that's what I think when we're talking about the World Health Organization. It's an existing institution, almost an insurance policy. You know, it addressed Ebola and SARS and H1N1 successfully. And unfortunately, due to slow response now, we're feeling the consequences of it. But to tear down the fire station is the wrong approach. What we need is a stronger fire station uh, that's better equipped. The annual budget of the World Health Organization is roughly a quarter of the cost of the CDC. So the numbers we're talking about are actually very small, and the return on the investment of putting money in, in the World Health Organization is great. So I'll leave it there, but we need to beat the coronavirus in every corner of the world, or else it'll resurge again, threaten lives, and shut down the economy again. That's very clear to us. Yeah. Well, I thank you for your opinion here. So what I heard is America is not dead. We've got a deep history with these international organizations. We're highly interconnected. We've got a high return on investment. And what you said earlier in our conversation is that overnight, things aren't just going to switch, right? The United States leaves and it doesn't mean that the next day things fall apart. So thank you for sharing that and for reminding us the sort of genesis of all of this and just how important these organizations are to our livelihood, no matter if you're in Chicago or if you're in Texas or in Hawaii. So thank you, Pushkar, for walking us through that. My pleasure. Thank you for the invitation. Well, this has been another episode of What in the World. Pushkar, if someone wants to follow your work, you write a lot, you have more work coming out. Where can they find you? On Twitter, that's at Pushkar M. Sharma. P-U-S-H-K-A-R-M, like Mike, Sharma, S-H-A-R-M-A. It's on Twitter. Perfect. And we'll be sure to include Pushkar's information in the notes and make sure you check out some of the resources that will be up on our website. If you want to learn more about some of the agreements that were discussed, if you want to read the actual UN charter to freshen up so that when COVID is over and you're at your dinner party or your happy hour or your celebration, you can talk about the UN charter and human rights and sound good around all of your friends. Thank you all for listening. Pushkar, my favorite part of the show, well, one of my favorite parts of the show (laughs) is the ending of our show. We try to end on a good note. We talk a lot of heavy stuff, things that can be slightly depressing. What is a song that is on your playlist keeping you in a great mood right now? So, you know, COVID-19 has overshadowed so much, so many things that have happened, regular news that really would have gotten a lot of attention. And one of those stories was the unfortunate passing of Bill Withers, an incredible musician. Yes. Just, you know, great down to earth human. He's the author of Lean on Me, which is like the anthem of solidarity. Mm -hmm. 
something we need to remember, but actually an energizing way that helps me press through the gloom of this strange moment is really Bill Withers' lovely day. I mean, that's really a wonderful way to start every morning. I appreciate that. And I'm looking forward to more lovely days. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I have a small article and kind of looks through COVID-19 through Bill Withers. So I'm, I'm working on that now. So hopefully that'll come out and people can take a look at that as well. Thank you again, Pushkar Sharma, for explaining the role of international organizations in COVID and helping us understand America's role in this space and why it's important that we remain there. And uh, that's all. Take care, everybody. Thank you all for listening to the show. We would be delighted if you shared the content that you heard, if you enjoyed it that much. You can check us out at www.whatintheworldpodcast.com. We're also on social media at WITWPod. And you can email us at whatintheworldpod2017 at gmail.com. We'll see you next time. Yeah,